Welcome to Headliners, the podcast. This is the paper review that won't put you to sleep. You can catch us live every night from 11 on GB News with a panel of top-notch comedians going through the biggest stories hitting the next day's papers. But don't worry, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Headliners. Stephen Allen and welcome to Headliners. Tonight I'm surrounded by Dixon Cox. Uh, that's Paul Cox and Nick Dixon. Uh, let's take a look at tomorrow's front pages. First of all, we start with the Daily Mail. Uh, the Daily Mail, now Megan drops her truth bombs, is their front page. Daily Telegraph goes with statins not to blame for aches, it's just age. The Guardian now, schools face closure as costs soar, warn Tories. The Financial Times leads with Brussels to unveil crisis action in bid to curb soaring energy costs. And Keyes forces uh, launch counter-strike to reverse Russian gains. Aaron Curzon. Uh, on to the Daily Express. Trust tax cut plan only way, in quote marks, important quote marks, uh, to uh, rescue the economy. Uh, the Sun now and Harry, I lost my dad. And we finish, of course, with the Daily Star that says fangs can only get better. And those were your headlines. Something to do with spiders and snakes, I imagine. Uh, well, we begin with Tuesday's Telegraph and the brutal reality that maybe you are just getting old, Paul. Well, yes, statins are not to blame for most muscle pain, scientists conclude. Fears over statin side effects are unfounded as they only lead to muscle pain in 1% of patients. The study showed that although people on statins frequently report muscle pain, it's almost never caused by the drug itself. So, a lovely bit of gaslighting there. Yeah. I mean, there's some logic there, though, isn't there? The people who take statins are likely to be of an age group who, and I'm entering it, I get the aches and pains. So, are we surprised to find that people on statins... Well, I'm not bad... surprised. I mean, this doesn't affect any of us, of course, because we have our hearts removed to work for GB News, Steve, as you know. But oh, um... your Twitter's going to go crazy. Ooh! Yeah, look forward to that. But, um, yeah, of course you're right. This, the, the demographic of people taking statins is, I'm going to guess, 50-plus. And I'm 43 nearly, and I ache all over. Yeah. Well, I'm older than 43, let, let me tell you. Oh, it's just even getting out of bed. I now make the same... Oh, I'm not going to do that joke. We all know the joke <laughs> about making that noise. Uh, Nick, you look, you're young and healthy, and how much can you bench again? <laughs> hey, only 85. Youngest here... It turns out. So, yeah, I don't have any of these problems. My life's just full of joy, a kind of effortless romp through life, a uh, very joyful person. But, look, it's, I'm glad we started with, a, with an exciting story, but it is important, this story, obviously. But, Steve, can't you forgive people for being sceptical about things? Because, you know, the ha side effects have been known to be suppressed in certain cases. I'm not referring to anything specifically. I'm just saying it does happen. And, you know, bl take blood pressure medication. I, I researched that at one point and found that, actually, the natural, uh, you know, remedies are often a lot more reliable than the, the, the tablets. And once you start taking them, you're on them for life. So I do understand people's fear around... And we know that the experts don't always get it right. They told us trans fats were good, et cetera. So I can understand if people, you know, were worried about side effects. But the benefit, the cost-benefit analysis here was huge. The benefit is a reduction of a quarter of dying of strokes and heart attacks. Yeah. The cost might have been 
aches. Yeah, it's funny because people, I suppose people have a bias towards short-term pain over long-term gain, don't they? They're like, oh, it's going to make me ache. People are like, well, you might stop having a heart attack one day. It's like, yeah, yeah, but I'm talking about today, bro. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's probably that. But then you go to the gym, which Thank makes you. you ache and might mean you live longer. You literally do yes. the same math. You're right. Yeah. No pain, no gain. I mean, there is a sweeping statement in here which says the report should put an end to people's fears. Yeah, well, will it? People, people love it. Not at all. Uh, Tuesday's Financial Times and one small step backwards for NASA, Paul. Yeah, NASA cancels launch of Moon Mission after engine trouble. Most people have seen this today. The blast-off of the first US rocket in 50 years capable of carrying humans to the moon was called off on Monday morning, last minute, because of last-minute problems with the engine cooling system. So... I imagine this comes as devastating news to anybody who can't afford to pay their heating <laughs> bill at the moment. It's, I don't mean to be flippant about stories like this, because it is, it's, it's, it is important, but it feels like moon dust is the last thing we need at the moment. It's not on my list of priorities. Yeah. So, it's, 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 obviously, it's a fascinating story. The whole idea of going to the moon, it, you know, it invokes sort of childhood fantasies of being an astronaut and all that sort of stuff. But... Uh, I can't get too excited about it at the moment. I'm really? Excited. But, Nick, this is all about beating the Chinese. Does that make you excited? It does, actually. That's why I get up in the morning for it. This, this is a... You know, didn't, wasn't there a story the other day that one didn't launch because of rain? And now this one didn't launch because of a crack causing engine leak, and they don't know exactly what happened. But it is a bit worrying. I mean, if, th if this, is the, this is the unmanned test, I'd be a bit worried about the manned version if I'm <laughs> the man that's going in it. You know what I mean? I suppose astronauts, by nature, are brave. But if you said, yeah, yeah, the last one didn't, they didn't even launch, bro, can you get in? You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I'd think twice. The only thing I want to add is um, it does make you question, and you were saying to me before the show, Steve, that we probably never went to the moon. And it does make, <laughs> it does make you... I just wanted to pick the least, the least likely person yeah. to believe that. But, but it does make you question, how come we went, allegedly, all those years ago, when we needed to beat Russia in the Cold War, then it was the Russians, now it's the Chinese, and now we just... Then we couldn't go for ages, now we still can't get it together. Yeah. Aren't you a bit... I don't even understand how you can launch from a flat Earth. It's <laughs> a great point. Great but, point. But in defence of like not launching because it rains, I mean, it seems like oh, wrong kind of leaves on the on the track. I think launching <laughs> a rocket into a huge cloud, you'd I'd I'd stay home if that was the choice. And this leak, apparently, they couldn't test this system before. This is which is why we're having unmanned ones. There, there are a number of issues, weren't there? I think there are issues leading up to today where they were unable to test this yeah. because they'd had issues that that meant they couldn't test this particular function. And the only way they can test this particular function was in a live situation. And then, of course, they pulled out. You have a two-hour launch window in which to do it, so, yeah. Yeah. Because I know quite a lot about the, the rocket. Well, I just read it off a piece of paper. <laughs> I said it with great authority. I... It's the two-hour launch window, Paul, you're referring to. I love the fact that we've all sat here and, and talked about this topic for two minutes and none of us have gone, come on, NASA, it's not rocket science. Because that, it was low-hanging fruit. I was leaving it for you, Steve. No. I know how you like those low-hanging <laughs> fruit. Glad you did. Uh, Tuesday's Express and the geopolitical fate of China is in Liz Truss's hands, Nick. Thank God, yeah. Hawkish stance, Liz Truss set to declare China an official threat if she wins number 10 race, which she defo will. So, this is, uh, this, so they're going to reopen the integrated review published last year, my favourite kind of review. And, um, and in the review, it says that uh, China is a systemic competitor and they might raise the level to acute threat, not acute threat, acute like a bad threat, uh, to put it on similar status to Russia. But paradoxically, they're saying they're going to deepen trading relations with China while also being really careful, while also telling them that's what we're doing. It's like, we're trading with you, but we don't trust you. Yeah. Just FYI. And um, it's interesting, the contrast with 
with Sunak because he had actually almost signed up to this thing that would have made uh, the UK the market of choice for China. So Sunak tends to be, let's be honest, a bit more ideologically neutral, morally grey. He's more about business, whereas Truss has taken a more staunch kind of Thatcher-esque stance in a sense of, of like, no, they're a threat to us. And she's saying there'll be no more economic partnerships. Sorry, uh, an ally of her is saying that after, the, uh, after democracy was suppressed in Hong Kong. And, of course, you've got the Uyghur Muslims, the treatment of them. So I understand it in, in that sense. And I think... You know, and Cameron, of course, rolled out the red carpet, no pun intended, for, for Xi, didn't he? So it, it's a different kind of relationship to China. And I think the, what, the only thing I want to say about it is that, you know, it probably is necessary because China actually are in a kind of soft war with us at all times. They're, they're, you know, they're using bots, they're funding our universities. That weird thing with Barry Gardner that no one understood. You could even say that lockdowns somehow may have happened because of Chinese policy. And I think it is important to take this stance against China. The only thing is you will, last point, have some economic damage from it. And the, the, the thing is, I actually, when it comes to Ukraine, I'm less hawkish about it, because I think, is it worth the cost to, to our citizens? Whereas with China, I think we do have to do this. OK. Just before we move on, just to check whether you're coming from an ideological point of view, you like Liz Truss and you think she's make, making the right move here. I can't remember what you said when Nancy Pelosi went for the visit. Were you in favour of what she was doing? When Pelosi went... Went to Taiwan and then upset yeah, China. I you... said I said that I, if, if it was a principled stance, against uh, Chinese, you know, oppression, then, then I was in favour of it. Yeah, I actually said that. So Why? You're, you're pro-US Democrats? Well, no, what it was, she actually... The Biden administration <laughs> didn't want her to go, and allegedly, and I'm very anti-Pelosi, but I said, if it was really a principal stance and no other reason, people speculated on her reasons, then I was in favour of it. Just to get that on, just a little clip... You, know, you were trying to get used. me like a politician, but I think I did quite well. I you did well, yeah. <laughs> And you actually answered the question, so you'll never be a politician. Um, Paul, your take on this. Are well, we walking towards a fight? Well... It always feels like if if China are playing chess, we're playing drafts. It always feels like we are right. miles behind them. It always... Technologically, they are so advanced that I could be saying the words that China want me to say now <laughs> without me actually knowing. Yeah. It just... It, it feels to me like this is such an obvious thing to say. We can't do anything about it. Like, like Nick rightly points out, all the sensible business direction is towards China. That's where we're going to have to go and we're going to have to figure out how we can do it without them listening into us talking. Yeah. So I suppose if you want to do well in terms of trade, you have to eat the poop sandwich a little bit. You've got to have to... Yeah. Um... But I'm saying we shouldn't because I'm saying we have to limit it because they are trying to take over our culture with their stealth communism. Yeah, we, I mean, we, we spoke a little bit about this previously. I think I was uh, talking to you, Steve. They, they do copy us a lot. You know, they try and, they try and generate... The West, the idea of the West within China, our sort of materialistic view of the world. They do like us. They're trying to copy us, but... Yeah. Uh, well, they copy aspects of it. They're trying to go for this corporatist authoritarianism and have the kind of best of... or worst of yeah. both worlds, depending on how you see it. And but, also they do sometimes just, like, hack to get the blueprints to some nice tech, which yeah, might be awesome. quite easy to do when you own the routers. And Leo always claims... And I, it's one of Leo's claims, so large pinch of salt, but Leo always claims that um, <laughs> TikTok here is sort of, as we know, is sort of teenage girls dancing, but he claims in, in China it's, like, educational, which would be the kind of thing China would do, like, you know, like slowly degrade Western culture with, with girls dancing, whereas on in their one it's, like, algebra. I don't know if it's actually true. I find those dancers very educational. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Tuesday's Independent Now and Liz Truss has pulled out of the BBC. Thankfully, not the other way around, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> Too busy. Liz Truss cancels only TV interview of Tory leadership race. So 
This is the uh, Nick Robinson interview that she said she'd do, but something's come up. She's washing her hair that night and she can't do it. And people are, of course, criticising her, and especially the Independent are loving it. But, of course, if you're ahead, would you do the interview? I mean, she refused to do the Andrew Neil interview. Sunak did it, got hammered. Not literally, he's a teetotaler, but apparently, you know, he had a grilling from Mr Neil, uh, and that's what happens in these things. Yeah. And we know that Truss recently mocked the BBC when she praised GB News and said, we get our facts right, the BBC doesn't. So, you know what the BBC are like, they're self-obsessed, they'll be looking to get her back for that one. And I just say, if, if you can get a viral clip so easily now going against you, the other day she was on that hustings and she said that Macron, she wasn't sure if he was a friend or foe, that's already being used against yeah. her. So imagine a whole interview with Nick Robinson. Tactically, it's smart not to do yeah, it. She's so far ahead, simply not turning up to the BBC interview is probably the most strategic thing she can... Positively strategic thing she can do right now. She doesn't... She, even if she was, uh, well, they call it empty-chaired, mm. she wouldn't lose out on the votes that she's already going to get because, like, like Nick says, it's just, it just becomes clickbait. They're, so, they're out to get her. Some haters would say an empty chair has more charisma than this first. I wouldn't, no, but wouldn't. some haters would say that. Are we, though, not... Uh, should we not be upset at the idea of a politician avoiding scrutiny? Because if you can get away without being scrutinised, what stops you from doing anything, good or bad? I, I mean, I think it's a really good point. Sorry, Nick, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, huh? but I think it's a really good point because she's going to have to deal with things a lot tougher than a BBC interview mm. in her first week. I mean, a lot of the things she said that she's unlikely to do, she's probably going to have to do, because at the moment, she's speaking directly to, you know, a few hundred, maybe a thousand people, when in about a week or so's time, she's going to be speaking to millions of people and trying to help them understand how they're going to pay for their fuel bills this winter. So I think she has tougher challenges ahead, so perhaps she should. But, she, you know, she's done the GB News forum, she's been grilled by people. And then I saw the one in Lee, they asked her a series of quite difficult questions, and that's the people who she's representing. Does she really need to be grilled by the BBC, who we know, especially if we look at Emily Maitlis's recent comments, we can imagine that BBC are pretty biased, they already don't like trust, probably. Does she really need to do that interview? I mean, she's not really she avoiding scrutiny. She's doing loads of hustings, she's speaking to people, I don't know. On to Tuesday's Guardian, and much like trying on a new pair of pants with unstoppable diarrhoea, Greenland has reached the point of no return. Paul. Yes. Mental image. <laughs> a lovely analogy. I'm just trying to uh, get that out of my head. Uh, major sea level rise caused by melting Greenland ice cap is now inevitable. So, uh, loss will contribute a minimum rise of 27 centimetres, which is entirely untangible to me, regardless of what climate action is taken, scientists discover. Now, this comes in a week where a third of Pakistan finds itself underwater due to the heaviest monsoons that we've seen in, I believe, a decade or more, killing, tragically, over a 1,000 people. So this is against the backdrop of climate change stories that are coming out day after day after day, not just in the UK. Although, interestingly, I've not read anything that, that actually compares what's happening in Pakistan with climate change, because monsoons happen there year after year. Obviously, it's devastating that these are the biggest ones in a decade, but a decade's not a long time in terms of these statistics. So it's interesting to see how, you know, if it happens on Hampstead Heath, it's the end of the world, but if it's happening in Pakistan, as tragic as it is, it's, it's, it's not as big a story. Yeah, I mean, I'm sceptical about all climate stuff. I mean, the, the promised ice age didn't come. There are more polar bears than ever. They said they were all gone. And this is saying, I mean, the, even The Guardian's saying here that that really there's nothing we can do anyway. They're saying it's inevitable, so why impoverish people, you know, if it's not going to make much difference? But they're not saying that what they've looked at is inevitable because what they were trying to measure is what heat is already in the system. 
They're not looking at what next steps will change. The, the next steps are not inevitable, but the thing they were studying, heat in the system, they, they, measured, they saw how much heat goes in, how much ice melts in that particular thing, and then they also know the time lag. You then look at what heat went in secondly, and you'll know how much ice will melt through the next number of years. Yes, so this story it's already is, in the system. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think this story tells us that 27 centimetres is happening regardless. What I, what I don't get from this story is um, what was expected anyway. So is that the baseline from which we were always going to move forward from? Or is that higher than that baseline and therefore we're halfway towards death or whatever's coming our way, yeah. not to be but suppose this, this is not trying to make predictions. I suppose so it's a bit of a cheap shot to say, well, this thing doesn't even predict the future when it's not aiming to. I knew, I knew you'd be pro-climate. I'm just pro-science. I'm pro-measuring <laughs> empathy. I'm just joking, mate. I'm pro-climate as well. I just don't always believe everything in The Guardian, that's all. OK. Well, we're just blaming the, the medium and not the stats. Yeah. OK. <laughs> Tuesday's Express now, and this headline sounds like it was delivered screaming whilst falling backwards into a deep ravine, Nick. Yeah. Um, passionate Boris urges Brits not to give up on green energy as PM set to bid farewell. So... This is, it sounds like a sort of annoying headline because you think, oh, Boris is still on about his green thing. But actually, if you look into it, he's also talking about nuclear. So it's a speech he's going to do. He's going to say that we're still going for net zero by 2050, which is silly. He says we're going to try and build a nuclear reactor every year, which is good. He's talking about wind power is going to be boosted, which doesn't matter. And um, he's also saying there'll be a huge package of support for families struggling with cost of living, which probably won't work, so it'll create more inflation, but they probably have to do it now. And then the interesting part to me is he said uh, the government... Well, he says it's this government that's reversed the apathy of decades and green-lighted new nuclear plants. He's like, yes, at the very last moment, <laughs> when you had to, because there was a war. And he says, we've become less vulnerable to the vagaries of the global gas price and less vulnerable to Putin's pressure. But the, the contradiction there to me is... Yes, we don't take much gas from, from Russia compared to places like Germany, who have a very low amount. But he's very hawkish on the war in general. And we are suffering from the consequences of that in terms of the gas price overall, supply chains, all these other things that are being affected. So I think that is a bit of a contradiction. He's sort of saying it's not. He's saying, look at us, we don't take much, you know, actual gas literally from Russia, but the war is affecting us in other ways. So I think that's a bit... A bit having your cake and eat it, which is very I, Boris. I'm slightly cynical about Boris's objective here. I think he probably wants to be on what he considers the right side of history. Oh, I thought you were going to say Carrie's good side. Yeah, well, same thing, aren't <laughs> they? I don't know. But uh, I, I, I don't agree with that, actually. But uh, um, I, I do... Yeah, I'm slightly cynical about that. I've got to say something here that... Um, and I'm aware that I'm on national TV, but, it, but I think Nick, I think, might agree with me on this. I think Go on. there's been a complete lack of risk analysis with our move towards net zero. And what I mean by that is... There are a lot of benefits to fossil fuels. We're all here today because of fossil fuels. You know, it's helped us stay alive. It's taken the earth from something which was very inhospitable to something that is quite luxurious for us. Yeah. Now, I know it's had a huge impact, but we can't charge towards net zero without looking at the risk of what that means for us as humans. And I think we're going to have to compromise. And at the moment, and I know it's very short-termist, but we're going to have to look at maybe... Um, compromising, stretching out net zero beyond 2050. But we are in danger of people dying because of, you know, continually pushing towards net zero. And I know that sounds dramatic, but what I mean is people aren't going to be able to afford this, this winter to heat their homes. And the supply chain for fossil fuels is, it has been strangled. It's been strangled for good reasons. It's been strangled because we need to push towards 2050. But in doing so, and now because of the war in Russia, we find ourselves in a position where 
we could do ourselves a lot of harm by charging towards 20 Does that mean you're actually agreeing with what Boris Johnson says? So if no, we, no, he's if agreeing we, with Liz first. Sorry, carry on. No, but if you had... I don't know what's built, worse. If, you, if you'd have built more uh, nuclear reactors, they've got the lovely modular ones these days, eventually you run out of the fancy uranium that they're in, so you need some of those thorium built. You, get, you could do a nice job of nuclear stuff, which is low carbon, and if you could bring down the price by having some big windmills going around, you don't have a complaint with that, do you? No, I don't. You actually. could get lower costs and... I would open that up all options. If it was me in charge, God forbid, I would open up all options. We'd have fossil fuels on there, fracking, nuclear, green energy. It would all be open and we would choose the best route to, 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 to meet the, the, the needs, which are heating our homes and not killing the earth. Yeah, I mean, okay. it's, it's, to me, it's the target, the arbitrary target. I mean, Liz Truss has said that she supports the goal of net zero, but in a way that doesn't harm businesses or consumers. And that's the difference. It's a difference in emphasis, whereas Boris is like, charge ahead, net zero, Carrie told me to do it. You know, so that, that is a difference to me. Though I do like when you said we're all here because of fossil fuels. I'm sponsored by coal tonight, <laughs> so I wanted to get that in. Uh, Tuesday's Independent Next and another existentially harrowing headline, Paul. Elon Musk says world needs more oil and gas, otherwise civilization will crumble. Feels like um, maybe I got there slightly before Elon there, or perhaps I just said it before I read this headline, I don't know. The billionaire promoted renewable energy while saying he didn't want to demonise fossil fuels. Elon. Says the man who launches rockets into space. E exactly. And, you know, we, get, we, we talked about NASA earlier. I mean, how much fossil fuel was that using? Yeah, I did. I you don't have to answer that. It's, uh, it's uh, rhetorical, but it's he makes a point, and I think he's making the point I'm trying to make, which is that there there is more than one way to skin a cat, and we we can say all needs to be green, and the only way to get to net zero is green, and you know of course it probably is, but this arbitrary 2050. Is going, is going, is hamstrung every government, Western government around the world. Anyway, I don't think China are worried about it so much. But you know, Truss after Boris is going to be hamstrung by it. This is policy that's signed off that needs to happen. And Nick, do you agree with Elon when he says that the transition to a sustainable energy, to a sustainable economy, that's what we should be aiming for? Yeah, I do tend to agree with Elon. I tend to defer to Elon because you know I don't really. This is not my expert subject. My expert subject is which comedians I hate. But this is like so. This is <laughs> and how that's much all you can I'm, bench. That's all I'm, and how much I can bench. That's all I'm really into. So <laughs> when it comes to things like this, I defer. You know, Elon's the richest man in the world, so I tend to listen to the richest man in the world rather than the most autistic girl in Sweden. And that's and no offense to Greta or autistic people. You know, all my friends are autistic, but I just want to say, who do you really want to listen to? I listen to Musk. And he's, you know, he's, he's also on my side when it comes to he believes that we need to have a higher population rather than the Malthusian misanthropes that, you know, run the global elite that think we need to get rid of all the people. So I think he's on the side of people. But, yeah, and, and he's very sober about it. He admits that, yeah, sustainable energy and a sustainable economy is a big challenge, but he also is realistic. So he says in, in the short term, as Paul said, fossil fuels may be necessary. Welcome back to Headliners with me, Stephen Allen, and the unfortunate surname pairing of Paul Cox and Nick Dixon. Uh, let's crack on Tuesday's time. And there's no shock to anyone, Meghan Markle's got more to say, Nick. Yeah. This, this, oh, are we doing the Meghan one? Sorry, I'm so sorry. I was going to launch into a diatribe about <laughs> something else completely, just some, some problems I had. Um, yeah, so Meghan Markle, uh, I was told my marriage was celebrated like Mandela's release was the headline. This is this interview she's done in The Cut, 
I started to read it and it was so insufferable I actually couldn't carry on. Um, she, there was a lot of strange... Well, one was the quite disturbing thing that Harry said, I lost my dad in this process, which is very sad. Um, and, and, and she said this strange thing that I can say anything, implying that she can say anything now, which some have taken as a threat. <laughs> and um, she made this odd claim that she would have no privacy with her kids, and yet people have pointed out, well, Kate has privacy, and actually it would go against the Ipso code to impinge upon that privacy. She also made a bizarre claim that the uh, British media called her children the N-word, which obviously couldn't have happened or they would be out of business. I, I think, I think, I believe she's probably referring to when the male said that she's almost straight out of Compton. And I'm guessing that was like the link she made there. That's just a guess because I can't think of anything else. It was all a bit of a bizarre interview. Uh, but the, the Mandela bit was that someone at the Lion King live action uh, premiere said that, um, he said that when she was uh, married into this family, we rejoiced in the streets the same we did when Mandela was freed from prison. So it's sort of typical self-aggrandizing thing from Meghan. All a bit weird. I mean, does Meghan do anything good? The thing about Meghan is she was actually welcomed. She, people did love the wedding. They were like, oh, it's amazing. And then we found out what kind of person she was, and that all ebbed away because, because, of, because of her personality. She would claim it's, like, oh, racial or something like that, but it's just not. Well, so you're not a fan, just to double this, I'm keen. sure. We won't, okay. not we won't clear. I have gone through the complete grief change curve when it comes to Meghan. All when five she, stages. When she first came to the UK, or when she started dating Harry and we knew they were engaged, I thought it was a wonderful thing. But I don't think I've ever been more wrong in my life. She's just become this kind of veruca that we, that we can't shake. And I know that's a terrible thing to say, and I don't say it lightly, it's just... She just will not stop talking. We, we don't get a break from her view. You know, the most talkative, silenced person in all of history. And I wanted desperately to really like her, and I wanted Harry to be happy, but I, I, he can't be. Can he? Do you know what? Is he? Sorry to interrupt. She does, she does sometimes stop talking when she makes guttural noises. There's a bit of the interview where it says, at one point in our conversation, instead of answering a question, she will suggest how I might transcribe the noises she's making... And then it quotes her, she's making these guttural sounds and I can't quite articulate what it is she's feeling. So Megan's saying to the interview, you could write guttural sounds. I mean, it's mental. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to... Give us some balance. Yeah, the balance, I suppose, would be like... <laughs> it's not as if the press were always absolutely lovely to not her. But then it just means she gets the choice to leave, Harry gets the choice to leave. I'm slightly bewildered about why we care so much. Because, you know, people will sit here talking so much about... It. I find them, as a couple, really easy to ignore and get on with my life. I don't know why people who, who are less uh, fans of them than I am seem to find that impossible. I would love to ignore them if it wasn't my job to talk about them. But she, she, wasn't, you know, she wasn't treated anywhere near as badly as Diana, I don't think. You know, she was arguably literally hounded to her death. So, anyway, carry on. No, I would, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a great bit of balance, and it's right. Our press, you know, have hounded her. There's, there's no two ways about that. She's responded in a way... It's just... You can pick holes in everything she does. She doesn't seem to do it with any class. That's, and I'm not suggesting that she should come fully trained to be able to do that. In that situation, I'm not sure I would survive at all. But I, I just, lo I would actually like her to recover in some way because we're losing Harry as a result of this. And also, in, in terms of balance, most people who do a podcast are insufferable. So. Yes, true. Can I just say one thing on a serious note? These are sort of minor complaints. She did come into this country on a, a time when we were unstable because of Brexit and things like that. We were really divided, and she sort of destabilised our royal family. So it, it was a really selfish and crazy thing to do. IMHO. OK, well, Tuesday's Telegraph now, and there's all kinds of hidden forces that shape the world, it seems, Paul. Oh, Twitter and Meta, otherwise known as Facebook, take down extensive 
covert pro-US propaganda campaign. Now, this is about tech giants te uh, Twitter and Meta having for the first time shut down dozens of accounts linked to pro-US propaganda campaign. Now, this is why we're doomed as far as I'm concerned. You wouldn't see Russia doing this. We have generated the propaganda <laughs> and then we've identified it and taken it down. I'm not sure that's the idea of the propaganda. And it didn't seem that bad to me, to be honest. I mean, it's kind of pro our view on the Ukraine-Russian war and it's spreading it in uh, the Middle East. But is there another version of what's going on over there, Steve? I will. I don't know. But surely the, the argument would be if it's a fake account, regardless of which pro it is, you get rid of a fake account. That's the terms and conditions that have been sure. broken. Yeah, I mean, I agree with Paul. If it's pro-Western propaganda, why can't we do that? China's doing it to us. Like you say, they've invaded your brain and it's dictating what you say on headliners. That's how far they've gone. Why can't we do a bit of pro-Western propaganda? Also, it's much better than censoring Hunter Biden's laptop, which is what Facebook normally do, according to Zuckerberg on the Joe yeah. Rogan podcast. Um, every, every time I guess a mention, a bell goes off. Um, but the, yeah, but this is only the propaganda that's been caught that's been taken down. That is true of all propaganda and fake yeah. accounts. So actually, maybe we are doing the thing that you want. Maybe we do have farms of bots spreading your message, Nick. I certainly hope so. Yeah. The only problem is I don't agree with a lot of Western propaganda either. So I hope it's spreading like my Western ideas, but it probably isn't. It's probably stuff like net zero. Well, on to Tuesday's Telegraph, and uh, I'm well, for one, I'm sure that boomers amongst us, really care about this Gen Z-related thing, Nick. Oh, is this the app? Yeah. Because some of your intros are so abstract. I just... I know. <laughs> um, they're like, like little, a quiz show. Little haiku. <laughs> yeah. um, the anti-Instagram app that captured a generation... This is Be Real, which is taking Generation Z by storm. And what it is... It, it, it gives you two minutes' notice to post a selfie and a picture, and it says you must post it now. And the idea of that, of course, is that you can't stage manage it as much, and it gets your, your actual life is and the crushing banality of it. But and it, it's good that it's more real. I totally applaud that. But the problem is the app is controlling your life because it's telling you when to post, and you're going, <laughs> oh, I've got to post now. So that part I'm less in favour of. It wasn't written by a Gen Z, though, was it? The buzzy new app. <laughs> <laughs> the, it was written by my granddad, I think. <laughs> God the rest kids are loving this Daddy groovy Daddy. new app. <laughs> the buzzy new app seeks to celebrate the banal and every day, like every other app. Don't we just celebrate <laughs> that on Instagram and Facebook? Yeah. I mean, that's what my timeline's full of, including my output. It's just banal. But, uh, yeah, it doesn't feel like this is a step in the right direction because there's banality in what they'll be posting as well. I don't care what people do in the next two minutes or if they get overdone up on Instagram. The key is to not pay attention to Instagram again. Or the key is we were on holiday, me and the missus once, and saw someone taking pictures for Instagram and they clearly weren't having a good holiday. They were more focused on the photo shoot. Just to watch someone's life be worse because they're on Instagram was a delightful moment and I tweeted about it. <laughs> um, Tuesday's Mirror now uh -huh. and festival season is coming to an end. Uh, fire season seems to be continuing, though, Paul. It certainly does. Reading Festival chaos as tents set on fire and worried music fans leave site. Revellers at this year's Reading Festival have reported leaving early after witnessing ugly scenes of tent burning, fighting and looting on the final day of the event. When I read this, the first thing I thought was, at least these kids are playing outside. <laughs> I mean... Oh, we can see some of it oh, it's now. It's like some sort of pagan oh, festival. This is what we used to call, call the summer holidays, wasn't it, Steve? <laughs> Three dead, a good fire. This looks like that movie Dragnet. This, it looks like Satanism to It me. is. I mean, I don't know what they expected at a festival. It's, yeah. got, it's got overtones of uh, Escape from New York to it. 
Yeah. I thought Snake Plissken was dead. Our, cult, our culture is so <laughs> debased, you can't really have festivals anymore because they, they rely on a certain amount of trust, not stealing from people's tents and things. So, yeah, they don't work. I went to Glastonbury in 98. It was absolutely... I call it my Vietnam. It was horrific, like <laughs> thick, deep mud and the lashing rain, horrendous. And then, like Meredith Brooks was on. You know, it was not it was not strong. But um, I don't, yeah, I'm against. I, my new catchphrase, Steve, on this show is I would ban it, and I would just ban festivals. Right. Yeah. Fair enough. Welcome back to Headliners. I'm still Stephen Allen, and they're still Paul Cox and Nick Dixon. So let's get back to it. Tuesday's time, Nick, and ooh, you've got to have faith, a faith of faith. Well, I guess it would be nice, Nick. Yep. Young have more faith in prayer than the old. So this was a survey from the Church of England, remember them, and they've surveyed 2,000 adults, and they're saying that those under 35 were more likely to pray than older people. And, of course, this goes against the assumption that we imagine that that's not the case. Now, the only, the only problem is they bring in mindfulness and meditation in there, which I don't understand. They throw that in there in a strange conflation. They're saying it's thanks to a growing... Imp and those are not prayer, so I don't know what they're spiritual, doing. Spiritual, though, I think, is the point They're there, spiritual, yeah, but they're not in any way Christian prayer, so I don't know why they're in there. But on the general point, let's imagine for a minute... That let's leave the meditation and mindfulness aside for a minute. I think it actually does make sense because old people, older people, presumably are more cynical. Maybe they don't pray as much. And if you think about it, the boomer generation are now fairly old and they famously were against all tradition. They destroyed religion in favour of their kind of leftism that didn't pan out. And now it's a kind of... It, people are coming back to the need for meaning. We have a broken culture, we have a lack of meaning, so it makes sense that young people are coming back to prayer. I'm a Christian, my parents aren't. So I think this makes sense. However, my little theory there is completely scuppered by this thing about meditation and mindfulness, which blatantly don't count. So you're, you don't like boomers, <laughs> but you do like Generation Z. Bold choice. I love boomers because my parents are boomers, right. but they did, in a cavalier fashion, abandon all tradition, and now we're living with the uh, legacy of that. Although is this story saying... Cos when you read through it, they're also... These young people might be praying, but they're not going to church. So, actually, maybe the story is young people don't care about church and that style of organised religion, but they like religion. Yeah, which is, which is why I say this slightly differently to Nick. I mean, it, they're making it sound like mindfulness and meditation is some sort of gateway drug to Christianity. <laughs> It's a it's, slippery slope. It's, it, 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 I don't think that's what they're saying. I think that these things open people's minds, young people's minds, to spirituality. And uh, the, the leap from there is to prayer. And prayer isn't something that's just from Christianity, and people can pray, can pray in, in different ways for different reasons. So I, I can see why this is manifesting itself, because people are trying to find ways to make sense of this world we're living And they've spent the last 30 years... Well, most of them aren't 30, but being told that Christianity's not a good thing. I mean, all of us would have had um, a religion as part of our school assemblies, mm. I'd right. imagine. And so we had some rooting or understanding of the benefits of that, uh, and, and, and sometimes not, but we were free to make our mind up. We weren't told. Whereas, whereas I think uh, particularly Gen Zers have pretty much been told that Christianity is bad. So I think this is a good thing. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I mean, I always... I had this... Uh, I said this to my... Someone in my family, anyway, I was worried about my nephews and, and niece that they were just going to go to... They were not going to get any Christian instruction. I thought it was a terrible risk, given that, like you say, we had it when we were younger, and we don't know what that did or didn't do. So taking that away seems reckless to me. But the only thing I wanted to add to that is I suspect this is Church of England propaganda in the sense that we know that about the catastrophic decline of the Church of England, that they're woke, they shut down during lockdowns, they wanted masks. They're just generally a mess. 
But this is them trying to say, oh, actually, loads of people are praying, and the way they're doing it is going, am I counting mindfulness and meditation to fix the numbers? I kind of think that's what's happening. And I don't think that they're praying to a Christian God. I don't think you do either, Steve. Me? don't do a lot of praying other than no, I don't on, think, yeah, but I don't... on smaller herbivores <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. down the food chain. <laughs> that's the only thing I pray. That's not quite what I meant. But what I mean is that I think this is, this is exactly what Nick is saying. There's kind of... There's something good going on here. Let's not ruin it. Uh, on to Tuesday's Guardian, and perhaps the blood, sweat and tears that went into my accordion days will make me better at Sudoku in my old age, Paul. Uh, well, you never know. Playing music in childhood linked to a sharper mind in old age study suggests another study. Another study. So researchers find uh, a link between learning an instrument whilst you're young and improved thinking in later life, uh, which kind of screws me, really, because... I started and stopped with a recorder. My mum, mum, who's probably watching this, forced me in 1985 to learn the recorder. And I gave up after three blind mice. So I don't know where that's going to leave me in my old age, Nick. Well, I uh, started playing guitar at age 13 and I've never stopped. And I'm, I'm very good. So, And I'm obviously incredibly sharp. So I think it is panning out. I think yeah. people should learn an instrument for... Yeah. Well, one, music is the greatest thing we have. And I'm going to go on record saying that. And two, the discipline of it... Is very is very useful now. If you really are not don't have a, a you know a proficiency for it, you probably will give up. But uh, you want to at least get the chance. What's your instrument? Did you say guitar? Guitar. Mm -hmm. So I, I yeah, this is where we're leaving you out. I was guitar, yeah. piano, and harmonica because I got I got into jazz and blues, which was a downhill. I don't think that's then that leads to things that does not help your cognition. Put it that way. But um, I'm ever so envious. I wish I maybe I'll learn now. Just imagine if you'd have stuck with a recorder. How much we could have had some erudite sesquipedalian I, commentary from you right now? I could but... have been playing three blind mice at Wembley. <laughs> uh, Tuesday's Times, and it turns out uh, languages all started from a big game of Chinese whispers, Nick. Yeah, so early European language spread by word, not sword, is the claim. So, you know, it says here, according to some, including the Nazis, the speed with which the proto-Indo-Europeans took over most of Europe's Europe and large parts of Asia was proof of their inherent superiority. And I know Paul was saying before the show he agrees with that, but the more... <laughs> I'm sorry, I just thought I'd throw you under the bus. Well, now, not... You're new to the show. <laughs> but, and, and then, of course, there's, the, there's people who, who say that... Um, they're saying it, that Caucasian races are inherently violent, blah, blah. But this, what this is claiming is that, actually, it's all about language. It's the language, in a sense, that was the coloniser, not the people. So it's saying that um, the original speakers of the language spread it to more powerful neighbours before dying out themselves. So they just they spread the language. It wasn't necessarily, you know, about colonialism. And then it's a very long and complicated article. To, we don't really have time to get into it. That's the, that's the overall... That's yeah. the bullet points. I mean, there's got to be a whiff of uh, Dawkins' meme theory. Like, some ideas catch on, so I suppose some languages should be more spreadable, be stickier for the mind. Maybe it was always just meant to catch on. Yeah, I would have thought so. I mean, I understand that. I, I'm slightly confused why this is linked to people being white. Because I know, I, know what, I know what this article is saying is obviously Westerners, even at that time in Europe, were largely white. But haven't we, haven't we undertaken studies since then that have proven that that's not strictly true, that Europeans and, and early British people weren't necessarily just white? So it feels like... I can't believe I'm saying this, and I've done, I've done a lot of things tonight which I can't quite believe, but it, 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 it does feel like this is just another study saying that white people are bad. And I'm quite happy to accept that we, we, we are... But I just don't like being told every week. Yeah, we are, but not necessarily in that way. I thought yeah. this was one of the few not saying we were, which is why I would have said that if I thought it. Because instead of saying once that we're evil conquerors, it's saying, no, no, just our languages. And let's face it, English is the best language. Maybe I've just... Maybe I've become a gammon. 
<laughs> and what's happened here is I read the first two... You've only been two, here about an hour. ...two lines and God, I can't believe this is <laughs> happening again. Everyone likes our tasty, irregular verbs. Um, on to Tuesday's independent and the loneliest man in the world has oh, died, Paul. I mean, there's, there's part of me that envies this man. Man of the whole. Last... <laughs> man of the whole, indeed. Uh, last member of uncontacted Amazon tribe dies. Not strictly true, cos people were tracking him the whole time. Trackers who followed Lone Survivor for decades found him dead in one of his huts. Last member of Amazon tribe, uncontacted by civilization, civilization has died. He lived alone for more than 25 years, which I kind of... Envy him for. Yeah. And they say that they called him a uh, man of the hole for his <coughs> practice of digging deep pits to hunt or hide in. Sounds yeah, good. I can't imagine living to see your entire culture destroyed. Oh, wait, never mind, it's happening. Um, it's happening to, I feel like it's happening to all of us that we're living to see the end of our culture. Yeah, but, but anyway. It shouldn't happen to him, should it? No. He's digging holes to hide well, from it's, us. It's sad. I mean, it must be. I can imagine a movie about it, not a particularly interesting one because he has no one to speak to, <laughs> but he'd be kind of like a castaway, but yeah. you couldn't cast Tom Hanks, but it would be a. Yeah, he was left... I saw it on Twitter. It is very poignant. It, just to be the last of your whole, you know, tribe is quite hard to imagine. And as someone... Has, Fiona Watson here has said, he symbolised both the appalling violence and cruelty inflicted on Indigenous peoples worldwide in the name of colonisation and profit, but also their resistance, although they have died out, so the resistance failed in that case. But, yeah, because loggers made it impossible for him, didn't they? The, the logging yeah. people and so on. And Yeah, and he had to dig massive holes. It's, it's a sad... It's a fascinating story, though. Yeah. Ethically, it's not right to help him, so they were following him around. But part of me, it's a bit like when you see an Attenborough documentary where you know <laughs> the gazelle is going to get it. You just want to go, couldn't someone have just said, whoa, whoa, watch out? Step in. But yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they don't, and they can't, obviously. But he was the last guy. I mean, he's so pedestrian as well. Man of the whole. A whole life he survived on his own, and they can only describe him <laughs> by the way that he... I quite like that. But, but do you know what I like about him? There's a couple of things as well. He... he... He marked out his animal traps so that the anthropologists didn't get hurt, which I like. And the fact that he wanted to be left alone, I think we can all relate to as middle-aged men. Oh, yeah. That's why I've got the shed. That's why the shed's carpeted. I don't really see myself as middle-aged, but it worked better for the joke. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I'm glad you pointed it out Thank as well. You. It yeah, felt cheers, like it yeah. needed it. Uh, Tuesday's Times, and it turns out if bees were human-sized, they'd be on 1830s holidays trying to get their legs over. <laughs> That's exactly what I thought. It's a lad's holiday, yes. Do bees travel overseas in search of sexual adventure? Silly keepers find out, but this is... People from the Isle of Scilly, not silly people. And, um, could be both. Could be both. And they've... Uh, Scillian... Scillonian beekeepers have launched a project called Game of Drones. I mean, these people are the ultimate nerds. It's, <laughs> it's bee study, and they've combined it with Game of Thrones, <laughs> so it's high-level nerdery. And um, they're going to convince bees are island hoppers with drones flying between the ar archipelago's islands in search of a virgin queen with whom to mate. Who hasn't done that? So hundreds of bees have been marked on the thorax, which must be incredibly difficult. You think about yeah. how small a bee's thorax is. And, uh, and basically, they mark them by different colours so they can see which ones ended up where, and if one ends up somewhere it shouldn't be, it's proof that it's travelled across the seas. And, you know, and someone's even said here, Nick Bentham Green, a trustee of the Bee Improvement and Bee Breeders Association, Bibber, as you know, Steve, <laughs> and it says, he says, we know this is happening, we're absolutely sure of it. People say bees don't cross water, and we're trying to prove once and for all, not anecdotally, but scientifically, that the drones do cross water. And it was a very long lockdown, <laughs> and that's why they've done this well, The undertones here are all obviously sexual, but they're not... This isn't pleasure for them, is it? They're not enjoying... This is, this is their biology, this is how they survive, isn't it? They're not charging around... Is this your chat-up technique? <laughs> 
<laughs> that's why that's why I married the first woman who said she liked me. <laughs> it's not for pleasure. No. This is purely function. <laughs> this is exactly what it is, though, isn't it? It feels to me like they've, you know, for our benefit, which is great, we can we can have a little bit of a laugh with it. But have they really discovered they've gone on a sexual adventure? I'm not sure they have. I bet they enjoy it. I hope so. I really hope they do. Yeah. And you know, like Nick said, we're all looking for that virgin queen. Yeah, unlock the door, you hear some buzzing happening. What's going on in there? Two bees, <laughs> thankfully. Uh, from Tuesday's Guardian, and this seems like a question that only Dr Doolittle can answer, Paul. Oh, yes, the big idea. Do animals have emotions? When a dog growls at you, is it angry? When a squirrel, when a squirrel flees up a tree, uh, is, it, is it fearful? Questions like this go on forever. Like, uh, when an elephant stands for days on the spot where another has died, is it grieving, Nick? I mean, when two bees are I'm desperate to, to take town. the Mickey out of this because that's what I'm here to do. But this feels like this feels like a much bigger question. You know, these studies are—they tell us a lot about ourselves, don't they? And they tell us a lot about the animal kingdom, and they tell us a lot about how we coexist and, and you know how we share certain commonality. I'm not sure, you know, I, I hope they do find out. I'm not sure they have. Well, yeah, it's, it's an interesting article. It's from Lisa Feldman-Barrett, and she's saying a few interesting things. One is that it's all actually perception. Is it actually that the, the animals feel emotion, or do we just perceive it that way? And that seemed like a fairly standard relativistic perception argument to me. But then, it, but then she went on with this interesting point that we group things together, and that was interesting. We group, like, all the planets together. She's saying the planets are very different. We group them together as one thing as, and call them planets. Although, in a way, that sounds like the kind of standard structuralist, postmodernist signifier stuff, like, we call it a planet, but is it really? But it is an interesting point, and, and, and she said at the end here, I know it, that um, empathy is important, but this view also... It also it tempts us to see animals as inferior versions, versions of humans, and she's saying we shouldn't do that. I'm comfortable with that, because in the Bible, it's, in Genesis, it said we had dominion over the beasts of the earth. But, yeah, it's a very long and complicated piece about whether animals have emotions, and I'm glad we've covered it in about a minute. Which is <laughs> It's just like a whole-hour podcast, really. And yeah, if you took the other side, if you presume that they do, like brains have emotions, it's one of the functions that work, disprove that. Have a look at, find me an animal that shows no emotion. Well, then yeah. at least you can try and prove something. Uh, and and this, this does play into the hands of vegans and vegetarians, doesn't it? If we find out that cows get really sad, <laughs> and they are delicious, Yes. Uh, it's going to cause me a problem. Well, Nirvana famously sang, it's OK to eat fish because they don't have any feelings, but if we find out they do, we're in trouble. But it also says, what is emotion? Because, like you say, the problem is, is it a brain circuit thing? Is it a survival mechanism? How do you define emotion? So that's also a problem. Right. Until you define that, you can't even do any research on right. it, can you? You need your terms. <laughs> so Tuesday's sun now, and I think this one actually proves animals do have some quite strong emotions. <laughs> they definitely have emotion in this case, and it, the emotion was rage because it's man killed and eaten by lion after breaking into zoo to try and steal a cub. I mean, schoolboy era, really. This was the Accra Zoo in Ghana. A man, in, uh, a room between his 30s, went in to, the, to steal the cub, and it said the intruder was pounced upon by the lions and devoured, according to the Forestry Commission, which is pretty much what you'd expect. There's not much more to say. Man tries to steal lion's cub, gets eaten. I've read the whole thing and finished just by saying to myself, good. Yeah. I mean, exactly what that lion should do. I mean, the, the guy's trying to steal his cub for a start. Not a good move. But... How did he think that yeah. was going to end? I mean, the, the only thing I, I read it and thought, I bet you there's going to be a court case about you should have to put up a sign that says <laughs> warning lions. Or yeah. But even with that sign, I bet that someone like that would still plough on it, through. It was a zoo, though, wasn't it? So yeah. <laughs> there yeah. will be something about them being dangerous somewhere, aren't there?
Yeah, and the other bad thing about this is instead of being a serious, sad story, it's like you end up as the funny story at the end of the show. Yeah, exactly. But actually, a man has died, but we're sort of taking it as the funny because he's gone in and we're sort of instinctively siding with the lion. It's a Darwin Award. It's Darwin Award. It's Darwin yeah. Award. Yeah, yeah. Taking yourself out of the gene pool. What it is. Uh, and we finish on Tuesday's Metro and a question I'm sure many of us have grappled with at some point in time, Paul. Man ponders what he's going to do with his massive cucumber. Yeah. Yeah. Now, do we need any more information about this? Not really. Of... <laughs> <laughs> Go on. That's why you've got two minutes to fill, so keep say, talking. Of course we do, Nick. Of course we do. Size should not be a priority in a person's life, Nick, unless they are attempting to break the Guinness World Records for the longest cucumber in history. By the way, three foot eight and a half inches. That is that's quite a long small. cucumber. That's about a metre, that's, isn't it? That's small to me. Is that? Oh, you think that's big? I, well, I'd say that was average. Wouldn't we can you? see there's a well, man. There we go. So either it's a really big cucumber or he's a really small man. Yeah, we need to get that confirmed. He could be a little tiny short person going, look at that. You know, that's that. It's, <laughs> it's the drought conditions now that are helping. This yeah. Guy. No, confirmed. That is a big cucumber. If you're going to cut too soon, Steve, you're not going to have a record breaker. But if you leave it too long, you get into the danger zone because it can explode on you. Have you ever had that? Uh, cucumber exploding all over me. Mm. Not uh, according to uh, what I can recall right now. <laughs> it sounded like you were starting a rap then. I was looking around thinking, just the way, just the really? rhythm of which you said that. I am very you? musical. Like I did cucumber I rap. I, I play guitar my whole life. Yeah. yeah. How, how much more do we have to do on this cucumber story? Oh, we're going to have to melt this cucumber <laughs> story. Oh, no, I Although, I will look, more widely... Feeding the starving. This, I mean, this is... It's feeding the starving. How <laughs> many... It's cucumber, though. It's like 90% water. <laughs> Not that I'm dissing... I am dissing cucumbers. One of the most pointless... Vegetables, it's a fruit, it's got seeds in the middle. Um, the one of the most pointless <laughs> things going on. I know it's a little bit of garnish, but it's mainly water. I have a I'll tell you what's got also 90% water a glass of water. Well, it says a secret. There is a secret here, Steve. So, we should, there is. so I don't know if I should mention it on TV, but his secret is a daily dose of warm water rather than cold. How will we cope? Well, that's good Works news. Works for me, too. I'm glad we didn't do that story about the police designating journalists, journalists <laughs> as criminals and we gave so much time to the cucumber one. That's why, this that's is why I come This important stuff. These are the big, important issues. So if you are growing any cucumbers at home, hopefully that will be useful for you. That's all we've got time for. Thank you, my guest, Paul Cox and Nick Dixon. Headliners will be back tomorrow with Simon Evans, <laughs> Leo Kirst and Kerry Marks. Good night. Thanks for listening to Headliners, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode again. And if you enjoyed it, leave me a nice comment. Speak to you at the same time tomorrow for the paper review that's never boring.